Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. I think two things are, uh, that you're suggesting are, are both true. One, and we already talked about this a little bit, is up until the 1980s, people, you know, they just were rather cavalier about the way that they carried themselves and home security and, and personal security and so forth. It really wasn't until the 1980s that people really started to take that stuff very, very seriously. And as I said, you know, shows like 48 Hours and 2020 and and Dateline really helped to, and and America's Most Wanted, certainly America's Most Wanted really put that on the radar that, hey, you know, we really need to be, you know, think about our personal security here. And then the other thing is, you know, especially when it comes to serial killers, we just were very poor at identifying them up until the 1970s. We didn't understand them. In fact, they weren't even called serial killers. They were called mass murderers up until 1974. So they were lumped together with the individuals who perpetrate the one-time horrendous you know, mass shootings. And, and as I said before, the psychology of a serial killer versus the psychology of a mass shooter could not be more different. A serial killer kills out of a hunger to kill and a need to do it again and again and again. The last thing they want to do is get caught, whereas a mass shooter oftentimes plans to die right there at the scene, along with everybody else. But more than 50 percent of the time they do die at that crime scene. Why? Because they're fatalistic individuals who just want to go out in a blaze of glory in their mind and make a statement. I was here and you're going to remember me and I'm going to take 50 people with me. You know, that's that's the you know the yeah. mindset. Very different than a serial killer. Oh, of course. Yeah. I think these mass murder types, you know, whether they're stabbings or shootings, I think it's really interesting that so many of them, well, for example, I I interviewed a lawyer out of Denver that had studied in depth the Aurora shooter Mm, mm -hmm. and the theater shooter. James Holmes. Yeah. And he planned that, like he said, the psychopathic and not the sociopathic, the psychopathic, correct? He probably has uh, different things going on there. It's probably borderline personality disorder. There may even be some real clinical mental illness there going on, but you can definitely see psychopathic tendencies as but well. He, Not, he wasn't he wasn't listed as as mental illness. He was yeah, listed no, as I know. Company, I, so. I, I know. Well, but again, see the thing is the bar, the the bar is so high in order to use an insanity defense. In order to use an insanity defense and in trial. Your lawyer, the burden of proof is now on the defense to show that you did not know that it was wrong to kill at the exact moment that you killed. Not five minutes before, not five minutes after, but at the exact moment you killed. And that bar is almost impossible for anyone to clear, let alone one of these you know, individuals. So that's why these mass shooters, the ones who survive, as well as serial killers, almost never are able to use the insanity defense because it just doesn't apply to them. Yeah. No, I, I'm I'm thinking just from a layman's term, whenever mm-hmm. you see any of these kind of mass killings, you just look at them and you go, yeah, of course this guy's insane. Because, you know, everybody looks at life through their own lenses and through their own rosy glasses. And 99.9% of people, I think, they look at these kind of incidences, you know, the Idaho shooting, the, the theater shooting, it doesn't matter, Ted Bundy. You look at him, you're like, that dude was just crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but, absolutely. I mean, that's what I get that all the time. And yeah. and that's why 
you know, as a social scientist, I try to say and try, you know, I, I empathize with the audience and say, yes, absolutely. As, as, a per, as a human being, I understand what you're saying. But the reason that it doesn't apply in the courtroom or in the mental institution is the following, because they just don't they, they don't fit the definition of either clinical or legal insanity. And oh, no. uh, they, they, they know it's wrong. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When, when they just don't care. They, they yeah. just don't care. Yeah, they either don't the care or they... a psychopath. A psychopath, right. yeah, I know, you know. Well, I mean, in yeah. fact, Dennis Rader, BTK, said this to me. He says, he says, I know you think it's wrong. I, you know, I know that, but I don't care. You know, yeah. I, I need to do it. In fact, he, he even turns the tables. Dennis Rader turns the tables and goes so far as to say, God created me as the perfect predator. Why wouldn't I do this? You know, why wouldn't I do this? And how dare you condemn me for for doing God's good work? He made me the perfect predator. I mean, that's how crazy, you know, he he turns it around, turns the table on us and say, how dare you condemn me? Oh, yeah. I'm actually, you should be like me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Well, you know, in many ways, you're you're kind of describing the the typical politician. You know, like, <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I I have a colleague of mine. His name is Kevin Dutton, and he wrote an incredible book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. And he studies exclusively, exclusively highly functioning, successful psychopaths in in the realm of areas like brain surgery, politicians lawyers, corporate CEOs, you know, if you think about it, there are certain fields where being cold blooded and indifferent to the feelings of others is actually a wonderful trait to have if you want to re, you know, if you want to be ultimate success, because you don't care who you step on along the way, you know, and, and yeah. so, so it's not surprising when you really think about it, why you could have psychopaths in the very bastions of power and influence in, in the world. Well, and I've talked to multiple people about this too, is that they, the psychopath is also in in many cases, an extreme narcissist. Oftentimes there's a big correlation there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that they almost worship themselves and the only thing that's really important is themselves and how they feel and, and they have no remorse over what has to happen in order for them to achieve whatever their success level is, you know, fortunately, most of those people aren't cold-blooded killers, but at the same time, they're very calculating. They're very predatory. Predatory, yeah. And and frankly, they just don't care who they hurt in order to achieve their goals. And that's an interesting. I definitely don't want to get into politics, but yeah, um, but you you can see it. I mean, it it you know that's why my my friend's work is so fascinating. You know, we he and I chat right. all the time about this. You know, I'm studying them in the you know the criminal violent killer world, and he's studying them in the boardroom. You know, the ones who are you know are highly successful. So we have some very right. interesting conversations about that. Um, but it is you know it is true. You know, it it, it is absolutely true. Which is why the the most psychopathic and narcissistic of the serial killers like the Ted Bundys, the John Wayne Gacy's, the Green River Killers, Gary Ridgway, are so prolific because nothing bothers them. Nothing bothers yeah. them at all. They're not afraid. They're not deterred in any way. BTK, for example, told me the story when he went into the house to kill his first victim, which was the Otero family in 1974. He had been targeting the daughter, the 11-year-old girl, Josephine, and also watching her mother. But he miscalculated. And when he went into the house, 
four members of the family were actually there, father, mother, little Josephine, and a, and a little brother, four members of a seven-person family. But being the, the psychopath and narcissist that he is, he just said, I didn't get all dressed up for nothing this morning. I'm ready. I am just going to adapt to the environment. And what he did is he, he had a gun with him, and he very calmly said, don't worry. I'm simply here to rob you. You don't need to worry about anything. I'm just going to tie you up. But if you cooperate with me, everything will be fine. Well, they did cooperate with him. And once he had them completely under his control, he became bind, torture, kill for the first time and did the most insidious, horrible things to each one of them that he had fantasized about in advance. So he was just cool, calm, and collected. No problem. I get four people. I can deal with it. So easily adaptable. Yes, exactly. And that's, and no fear. Absolutely no fear. You know, another wow. one, another one that, that is almost mind boggling. And he's, people ask me all the time, who is the most disturbing serial killer of all, or the one that you just find the most, you know, incredible. And the, the one that always comes to my mind is Richard Ramirez, the night stalker in Los Angeles. And the reason that I say Richard Ramirez is because he fits into a category of serial killer known as a thrill killer. He was an individual who killed simply out of the excitement, not necessarily sexual excitement, but out of the adrenaline rush to kill. It was almost like he fashioned himself a big game hunter. He was, you know, he was killing people and they were trophies uh, for him. Now, what he did that made him unique, even among thrill killers, is this. And the reason he was called the Night Stalker, he would go into his neighborhood in suburban Los Angeles back in the 1980s. He'd find in a completely dark neighborhood, at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, a house with an open window, not knowing who or what was inside. His M.O., he would just climb in the window and kill whoever and whatever he found inside. He didn't know if there was a family of Doberman pinchers in there and people with, you know, armed with AK-47s. That was the thrill for him. That's incredible. So above and beyond the mindset of a psychopath to kill, he had to up the ante and, and surprise himself, not knowing what he was going to get into. It's absolutely incredible. I actually, you know, people, when they, when I say this at first blush, they, they say, what are you talking about? I, I say it's like, it's, it's a little bit like the movie Forrest Gump. And, and what I mean by that is, do you remember, if you saw the movie, Forrest Gump's mother said to little Forrest, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Well, for Richard Ramirez, every window in L.A. was like a box of chocolates. He never knew what he was going to get. And that was the excitement for him. That's just taking it to another level almost. Yeah. Wow. So I just interviewed a guy named Jimmy Toro, and his story is absolutely fascinating. The interesting thing about him, among other things, is he, as a four-year-old, was a victim. And his father and a bunch of his friends were these status that w would torture him and his sister. And even to the point of putting him in a coffin with a, with a dead body that had been basically gutted and burying him. And he, could, he said he, as a four-year-old, he could hear them throwing dirt on top of him. So he literally did not know that he was ever going to make it out alive. And so just before he had literally exhausted himself to death, you know, trying to fight and get out of that coffin, they brought him up. 
And he said the sickest part about it was here are these adults who, especially his father, that is the one figure that should be protecting him, but adults in general should be protecting him as a child. And yet they were so sadistic that they were actually sexually aroused by the, the fact that they were torturing this poor little kid. Mm, and horrible. to me, that level of psychotic behavior is one of those where you just look at them and you're like, okay, that's one of those, those men. And, it, and it's it, the vast majority of them are men, correct? The, these kind of deviants that will go that far. Well, about 85% of all serial killers are male. I'm interested. I think it's interesting that it's 15% female. That's yeah, which is um, actually it's it's interesting because about 10% of all murderers are female, but 15% of female killer killers are are serial killers are female, which kind of suggests in a, in a in a in a in a you know a little bit tongue in cheek, but women don't kill that often, but when they do, they kill a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A, w- a woman scorned, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Once, yeah. once they uh, get pushed once over they the kill, edge, they're they're good at it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, women are good at a lot of things, and they, I, it, yeah, taking care but, of. But still, uh, it's clearly the minority. Clear, clearly, clearly yeah, the minority. Yeah. Well, and it's, I, I, I think part of that is physical. Part of that is, you know, like you said, impulse. Men suffer much more from from out of control impulse than than women do. To me, though. Back to Jimmy Toro, the level of psychotics that I think that are out there that are doing just sick things that we never hear about, I, I think is is actually a lot higher than what most people what most people would think it is. So, oh sure, yeah, no, I believe that. Yeah. I mean, what you know, what goes on behind closed doors is you know frequently just you know never comes to light, um, and mm-hmm. only the most probably you know only the most horrific cases are the ones that we actually you know, hear about, but there's terrible things happening all the time, unfortunately. Uh, What do you think is the cause of that? To me, it's, I think there's, there's a basic level of human behavior that I I think is instilled in all of us, you know, love and compassion, the ability to empathize, those kind Mm -hmm. of things. I I think those are all God-given natures and, and most people are born with them. But what is it about, I don't, I don't know if it's social where we're kind of, uh, deviating further and further away from the human nature that is on the good side? I, are are we, is it, is it more just we're hearing about it more or is it actually increasing? Well, as I said earlier, the, in, in, in the case of serial killers, they're actually dramatically on the decline. And I don't think that the, the that the psychopathic personality or the sociopathic personality has diminished in any way in numbers. I think it's a combination of a we are getting better again at detecting them early on and apprehending them through things like DNA and profiling, etc. But they're also manifesting themselves in different ways, because, again, remember, it's only a tiny sliver of psychopaths and sociopaths who become predatory killers, serial killers, or violent in general. Most psychopaths are not violent. They're predatory, as we've already talked about and even, you know, joked about a little bit, you know, being successful in in whether it's banking or lawyers or, or, or whatever. They're predatory in nature to the extent that they don't mind stepping on other people, but that doesn't necessarily make them, you know, serial killers. 
Right. Not all serial killers are psychopaths. Not all psychopaths are serial killers. There is a correlation there, but it, it's actually it's a small percentage of the individuals. And in, in terms of your question of environment, you know, nature versus nurture, I've always believed it's a combination of the two. It's a, a, a mm -hmm. and 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 again, why why are we seeing an uptick? Certain. I mean, the one thing that we can certainly document is an uptick in these horrific mass public shootings over the last ten years. And that, I firmly believe, is due to the socio-cultural political environment that we live in right now, where society is almost being torn apart. I mean, you see, people are afraid. People no longer believe in the American dream. They no longer think that their children's lives will be better than their, their own. People are just afraid and alienated. And in that kind of a, an arena, if in that kind of a social context, as I said, very bad things are going to happen. They're bound to happen. Yeah. There's a fair number of people that I've talked to that, including law enforcement, that think that when it, when they look back as to motive and things like when once they actually catch the person, that the dehumanization of, especially of social media, is a major factor. And the mm -hmm. fact that we can, I don't know if you know Dr. Lee Meller. I know the name. Yeah. He's a good friend of mine. I've interviewed him a couple of times on the, for the show as well and fascinating discussion. But one of the last ones that we had was what he called the lockdown before the lockdown. And what he meant by that is social media and our ability to interact with the world in a, it, it's an artificial way, but in many times, in many people's minds, when you are interacting with someone on social media, it's equivalent in their minds to being face to face and mm -hmm. being person to person. And, mm -hmm. you know, like you and I, the way we're talking right now, granted the way we're, the reason we're doing it is because uh, we're what, 600 miles apart, but you know, technology has allowed us to be able to do this. But at, at the same time, if this is the only way that I ever interacted with anybody, I mean, it's better than just staring at a screen because, you know, there's an actual interaction and it's causing all sorts of things to, to happen, you know, my, my brain is constantly going with everything you're, you're talking about. It's just like, holy crap, man, how many uh, psychopaths do I have living next to me? But, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, the social media and everything, and he's talking pre-COVID, you know, social media especially, but, but technology in general has allowed us to be conditioned to the point that when the lockdowns happened, we just accepted it. And, and in his mind, he was thinking that, if if we hadn't been conditioned because of social media and in all the ways that it has kind of locked us down in physically we're locked down, but mentally we weren't, uh, at least in, in a lot of people's minds. But we would have never accepted the conditions. And frankly, I don't think we ever should have accepted those conditions of the, the COVID lockdown. But mm -hmm. it's just one of those that how else are we are we conditioning ourselves in a negative way? that is kind of forcing out a lot of this uh, psychological behavior or psychotic behavior well, that you know, will manifest it's, it's, itself in other ways in the future. What you're saying is, is very interesting, and I definitely see the, uh, the merit, the logic of it. The thing about social media is it's intimate, and yet there are walls at the same time. So yes, we can sit here, we can communicate, we can share, but at the same time, there is no physical contact. And I think it permits us to be very cruel 
and cold and indifferent to others in a way that we would never do in person. You know, people right. people say and do things on social media that to other individuals that I don't think they would ever do in person. So there is that lack of intimacy there that enables us just to be very callous and very cold and hurtful to other people. So I definitely see that. I definitely see that as one of the negatives of, of social media. Well, isn't that why uh, Mike Tyson basically said, Far too many of you have been conditioned to say things and not get punched in the face. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you 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 would say things uh, here in social media in the in the safety and security of your home on the internet that you would never right. say to Mike Tyson if he was standing in front of you. Right, absolutely true. That's oh, a good I, point. I, yeah. I mean, I think all of us have have we've had people say things about us or to us, you know, quote quote to us that. They would never say face to face. And, and right. you know, right. everybody's a keyboard warrior when they're when they're safely behind their computer and at home and uh, physically a safe distance. But, you know, it, it, to me that it's another it's almost like the 80s where you have less chance of getting caught by doing deviant behavior. And to uh, yeah, it, to me, it's not good. I mean, understanding the things that you can do on social media that is kind of so many people now have this mindset. I don't want to get totally, you know, down on social media. Social media mm -hmm. is fantastic. I mean, I've been able to reconnect with all sorts of people that and connect with people all over the world that I would have never, never been able to meet. I know you included. I, mm -hmm. I, I noticed we're, we're connected on LinkedIn and, and I just followed you on Twitter and and I'm following your your blog now and just everything I've read about it is just fascinating. And I Thank just, you. I, you know, being in the true crime space, I, I love this stuff. And, you know, every area of it to me is fascinating and just solving crime in general. And, and that's really the purpose of my show is to kind of help educate people on every aspect of investigation from when the officer responds to a nine one one call, all the way to figuring out why people do things, which is kind of where your expertise is. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> just picking up on what you were saying about the, you know, about social media, and you know, I, I'm a big believer in no technology is inherently bad, or you know, or for that matter, good in in and of itself. It's you know, it's benign. It's it's technology. It's what you do with it, you know. And you know, in the 1950s, they almost put comic books out of business because they thought that they was corrupting the mind of children and making them join gangs and and Batman and Robin were gay and it was going to destroy the world you know th things like that you know so they you know it's uh, media and technology are not living things they are neither good nor bad it's what we as humans do with them and something like social media for all of its wonderful attributes and benefits that that it's created for us clearly when it's misused has a uh, a downside to it so um you know that's just that's the nature of the human condition and what we you know how we operate as 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 people and we need to be much more sensitive empathetic we've talked a lot about empathy today we need to be much more empathetic and consider the ramifications of what we do and how it's going to affect other people Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.